Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled The Changing Landscape of NSCLC, MET Inhibitors, is provided by Agile and supported by an independent educational grant from the healthcare business of Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Everett Vokes. When looking at the non-small cell lung cancer patient population as a whole, approximately 3 to 4% harbor MET exon 14 skipping mutations that result in increased MET kinase protein levels and a constitutively active pathway. And although this patient subset does not yet have a licensed therapy in the United States, the good news is that there is a lot of excitement that these changes may be targetable with MET-directed approaches, which is what we'll be focusing on today. Welcome to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Everett Wokes, and joining me today is Dr. Ross Kamich. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kamich. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. There's increasing discussion about MET exon 14 skipping mutations and MET gene amplifications in non-small cell lung cancer. What exactly are they, and why have they become such an important genetic marker to identify? So we've known about MET, which is the receptor for the hepatocyte growth factor, as a contributor to oncogenesis for many years. And I think what we're starting to define is some subgroups of non-small cell lung cancer where MET is the primary driver uh, of their of their uh, of their state, the the ways we can define that are are variable. Perhaps the the easiest one is these things called MET exon fourteen skip mutations, which are a range of different mutations which alter the splicing of the RNA such that you lose the uh, the coding for exon 14, which encodes something called the Sybil binding domain, which is essentially the expiry date of the protein. And when that's not there, the protein has a longer half-life on the surface of the cell. It's felt to auto-aggregate or uh, together with its ligand and cause signaling. In addition, you can get uh, a MET-addicted state through other means, uh, high copy number of the gene, which can be defined in different ways, can also sometimes produce a primary MET-driven state. And finally, there are rare examples like MET fusions, uh, which behave a little bit like ALK and ROS1 gene fusions, can also be uh, described as another means of primary MET-driven status. So there are several different inhibitors of MET pathway activation, including antihepatocyte growth factor, MET receptor antibodies, as well as small molecule MET kinase inhibitors in development. So let's look at the antihepatocyte growth factor MET receptor antibodies first. Could you describe them for us, Dr. Kamich? Yeah, so we, we actually have a lot of tools in the armamentarium for attacking the MET pathway. Uh, some of the earlier attempts, many of which were unsuccessful, were developing monoclonal antibodies either against the ligand, HGF, or against the MET receptor itself. To be honest, most of those have fallen by the wayside, uh, partly 
you could argue, because of the drug. But most of the excitement, I think, is relating to the small molecule inhibitors. And crizotinib, uh, which was a, uh, the, perhaps the, the first workhorse MET inhibitor, it's well known as an Alcon ROS1 inhibitor, but it's also a MET inhibitor, has shown some interesting activity. Um, but the other drugs, such as catmatinib and tipotinib, have also, I think, uh, really taken over that mantle. They also have CNS activity, which crizotinib does not. One of the things we're starting to realize is that there are different classes of MET inhibitor. Uh, it, it becomes a little complex in terms of the biochemistry, but most of it relates to where these drugs bind on the, the kinase domain of, of the MET. And it matters because sometimes the acquired resistance mechanisms will leave the MET vulnerable to something in a different class. Crizotinib is a type 1A, catmatinib and tipotinib are both type 1Bs, which means they have a slightly different binding site. And the type 2s, there's the rather dirty drug cabazantinib, but some of the other drugs such as glasatinib and uh, meristinib are type 2 inhibitors. But they're not the ones which are the focus of most clinical development at present. Could you also discuss a little bit the um, importance that some of these are very specific and some of them are what we call a little bit more dirty, multi-kinase inhibitor, in terms of what that would mean for their toxicities um, uh, as we think about treating patients with these various drugs? Well, with any um, kinase inhibitor, they're all, they're all varying levels of dirtiness in the terms of other kinases that they hit. Now, in terms of their effect on toxicity, that depends on how much of the toxicity is due to on-target activity in terms of the target you're concerned with. So, for example, peripheral edema is an on-target effect of MET inhibition. So all of these will produce that. But the drugs which also hit a bunch of other kinases, so crizotinib hits ALK and ROS1, which doesn't give it a lot of extra toxicity, but cabazantinib hits a large range of other kinases and certainly is a fairly tough drug to give. Anyone who's trying to give it for thyroid cancer will recognize that dose reductions are very common, for example, for mucositis or diarrhea. So, you know, when you want to hit MET, having a cleaner MET drug means you'll take on board the MET-related toxicities, but you can jettison some of the, the unnecessary baggage. And cabazantinib would be a great example of a a drug with a lot of unnecessary baggage. So Dr. Kamich, what can you tell us then about the clinical data so far uh, that have been generated with these more specific um, drugs targeting metexon 14 mutations? Well, we, there's a lot of interesting data that's, that's coming out. Um, if you look, and let's focus on catmatinib and tipotinib as the, the two furthest advanced in development drugs. If you look at their data, they seem to routinely have objective response rates in the 40 to 50% range. Now, there's an exception. There's a 28-patient study of catmatinib in the first line, which showed a 68% response rate by the Independent Radiology Review Committee, 61% by the investigator. Interesting, that's the opposite way around from the way we would normally do it. Um, but that's really the exception. And if you look at catmatinib in the second or third line, it's still running in about a 40% response rate. Tipotinib, regardless of line of therapy, is running at about a 40 to 50% response rate. And median PFSs are sort of running in the 12 to nine months range. Now, certainly this shows activity of these agents in MET-exon 14 skip mutant patients. And on the basis of this, for example, we recently heard that Tipotinib has just got licensed in Japan for MET-exon 14 skip mutant positive patients. 
But I think there's something hiding in plain sight here. I think the fact that we're used to with ALK and EGFR to get response rates in the 70 to 80% range, and we're really not seeing that with the exception of that first line study of catmatinib, maybe what we're really seeing is some underlying biological heterogeneity. And if you're, you get lucky, your study happens to have more of those patients and your response rate is higher. And if you're unlucky, your study has fewer of those patients and your response rate is lower. And that introduces a, a question as to what is that relevant heterogeneity? And secondly, it introduces a challenge in comparing the activity of different drugs when you don't know if it's the drug effect versus who actually went into the studies. There's only one clue. So clearly if you know there is our kind of true met addicted population and some who are either less or not addicted who go into the study, that can mess around with your response rate. It can mess around with your PFS, but it introduces the idea that duration of response might be our only clue to allow us to compare between drugs. And what I mean by that is if you've responded, you've kind of defined yourself as being in the true met-addicted state, and therefore a difference in the duration of response could actually reflect a difference in the, the effects of the drugs. And it's interesting that tepotinib tends to have durations of response running about 14 or 15 months, whereas they're about 9 to 11 months for catmatinib. The one caveat here is you have to assume that the duration of follow-up is actually the same. I think that's definitely going to be something to watch. Really interesting information. Is there anything you can tell us about the patients with brain metastases? This is something that commonly happens in this population of patients. Um, do the drugs work? Do they help these patients, best as we know today? So that's a really great question. And I think the, the, we've certainly seen in the last few years a, a maturation in our thinking in terms of how to address brain metastases in clinical trials. Capmatinib, I think, did a somewhat better job in terms of allowing patients in with untreated brain metastases and capturing that data. And they certainly have generated some data that they have CNS efficacy. Tepotinib took a more conservative approach. They tended to exclude those patients from getting into their study, but they had uh, an expanded access program or a single patient IND for a one patient actually with a MET fusion who had brain metastases and they clearly responded. So I think Tepotinib is playing catch up. Um, both of them believe they have activity in the brain, but we have a slightly tighter data set for Capmatinib than Tepotinib at present. Great, and Dr. Kamich, could you also comment uh, the other class of patients, or group of patients better, um, where EGFR uh, is the EGFR mutant uh, population that becomes resistant uh, to an EGFR uh, inhibitor with met, met amplification. Is that a group of patients that could benefit or is benefiting, best as we know to date, from this uh, class of drugs? Yes, I think MET is certainly going to be in the running and for best supporting actor, Oscar, because it can be the mechanism of acquired resistance. Uh, we now know for EGFR mutant cases on both first, second, and third generation EGFR inhibitors. Recently, we saw it was also a mechanism of acquired resistance in ALK rearranged patients. And so the excitement is these classes of drugs, uh, these more specific MET inhibitors with CNS penetration, may have a, an additional life as something that is added in, in those patients who are manifesting MET as their mechanism of acquired resistance. EGFR is the group that is furthest advanced. 
The challenge there is that they're using MET often by MET amplification, which goes back to the idea that it's a continuous variable. Where do you put the cut point to say, this is the group that needs MET added in, and this is the group that doesn't. There are conflicting demands. The higher you put the cut point, the more you're going to show activity, but the smaller your patient population that might benefit. Thank you. And as we come to the end of our program, Dr. Kamich, what are the key take-home messages from this discussion? And could you also offer a glimpse of how you think these agents will be used in the near future to improve outcomes for subsets of patients with non-small cell lung cancer? I'm excited that MET, which has really hung around for quite a long time, is now going to have its moment in the sun. I think MedX on 14 will be the first group that we will start to routinely test for. We are going to have useful tools which are going to get this disease under control. But that is the beginning of the journey, not the end. As mentioned, maybe there's going to be relevant heterogeneity in MedX on 14 to truly define the sensitive population. We're going to see acquired resistance mechanisms, which may still be addicted to MET, and maybe we need to change the class of drug. Maybe those antibodies or antibody drug conjugates are going to come in there. And then those same agents are going to have a separate life where MET is a mechanism of acquired resistance in other driver oncogenes. So this is the beginning of MET's time as a relevant biomarker in lung cancer. Great. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Kamich. And for me, I agree with these conclusions. I think the biggest take-home message is 3 to 4%. That is a large number of patients where non-small cell lung cancer is concerned with a MET exon 14 mutation and then an additional group of patients coming from the EGFR mutated cohort of patients. So this is a potentially large group of patients for which there's now increased hope that in the future we will have better treatments available. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. So I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ross Kamich, for joining me today to discuss metkinase pathway activation in non-small cell lung cancer. It was great speaking to you today, Dr. Kamich. It was my pleasure. This activity was provided by Agile Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.